0: A lot of these members who don't legislate don't understand anything, and so they're not of value to these lobbying firms.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, January 30th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston with a look at the increasingly crowded revolving door between Congress and K Street. It turns out that there are so many members of Congress retiring that there might not be enough cushy jobs left for them on the outside. Abby and I also take a look at Donald Trump's possible running mates and what Trump wants in a number two now that he's on the cusp of reclaiming the Republican presidential nomination. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. You know, in the swamp, they call it the revolving door. The always-on exit from Capitol Hill over to K Street and then probably back. It holds true not just for staffers, but also members of Congress themselves who frequently leave office after a nice little tenure on Capitol Hill and find a cushy, well-paying job. Working for banks, financial services, pharma, oil and gas, ag, anything. Issue advocacy. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston to talk about why there might not actually be as many of these jobs as there used to be, if only because so many members of Congress are quitting. Abby, welcome to the show, how you doing? It's good to be here. So Abby, before getting into the uh, lack of available jobs, just give our listeners a sense of who's retiring, how many of of these members of Congress are retiring, and, and perhaps why.
0: So it depends on really what you classify as a retirement. Members leave for a number of reasons. Some leave because they're going to run for higher office statewide, some for president, some are going to resign because they got a job offer. That's not really looked well upon, but some members have done that. It's undeniable that... Coming out of the chaos of Kevin McCarthy's ouster, a lot of rank and file, or sometimes leaders in Congress, longtime stalwarts, are have had enough. Their travel's upended. There's no reliable congressional schedule when you don't even have a speaker, and there's just they're at their wits' end. I would say on the Democratic side, the archetypal Departure from Congress is a very ambitious person elected in 2018 ish. And um, there's sort of a new breed of Democrats, and they're running, wanting to run for Senate or governor or something like that. On the Republican side, which is really of interest for this story, a lot of longtime legislators, Republicans have term limits on their chairmanships at committees. Those When those term limits run out, those members tend to leave. And so those are the ones I'm kind of interested in. And so it's not quite glutted, but it, there's about 40 retirements at this point on the House side and far fewer on the Senate side. But it's not... A record-breaking, and we haven't even surpassed the numbers of last term, but we're probably on track to do so eventually.
1: So, can you describe the kind of job a departing member of Congress would take in Washington? Because all of the terms around lobbyists and issue advocacy are pretty hazy. But you know, I assume somebody like Michael Burgess or Debbie Lesko, they could go on to be a like vice president of government affairs. At X company in Washington, but like what, what exactly does that job look like? And then what industries typically pull from Capitol Hill?
0: Well, you know, like like a lawyer or any other sort of expertise. There's generally two kinds. There's the 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 members who go to a big lobbying or law firm like Aiken Gump or mm-hmm. Squire and Boggs. Hopefully, I got that right. And they are in house and or and they do they have a host of issues. And then there's the kind who go work for a specific company or and are an in house lobbyist. They might work for a big company like. Target or Uber or Facebook or something like that. So that's kind of what we're talking about. And you sort of come in, your value is at its peak when you've just left Congress. And the reason for that is they're hiring you for your relationships, your ability to get in the room and talk to an ex-colleague. There's a little bit of a cooling off waiting period, but eventually you can start working in those offices and being able to make your pitch. And you may not be successful, but it's really pretty much an accomplishment in itself just to get in for a meeting. So that's sort of what the life is like.
1: What kind of cooling off period is there? I mean, what are the federal rules right now around... Uh, the revolving door.
0: There's a one year cooling off period and some ex-members take it so seriously that they almost completely withdraw from sort of Mm -hmm. the social life of Congress because they just don't want to get into any sort of trouble. But generally speaking, yeah, it's a year.
1: So just what's the gossip then on K Street? Like, like why did you decide to write about this? You were just hearing like, oh my gosh, all these members of Congress are putting out feelers right now and (laughs) we don't have enough vice president roles for all of them?
0: Yeah, well, so what it is there's a lot of retirements and then there's a lot of quality people who are retiring. So for instance, I'm gonna get really nerd speak of Congress, but like the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which to me sounded like one of the most boring places in the world to be, is extremely powerful because it regulates interstate commerce. And the late John Dingell, who was a chairman, once pointed to a photo of planet Earth and described that as his jurisdiction. So this is enormously powerful. And any member who has been on there, that committee can be very valuable to almost any company in America. The problem is, is I think at this point, there are seven members of that committee retiring. So even within these sort of elite circles of policy, there's just a glut of members. Now, what I have also been told since I ran my first pass at this in Puck last week is, the thing that we see in the decline of quality of members of Congress, particularly on the House side, the need to be the center of attention, the emphasis on social media, performance art, that is not what lobbying firms want. They want people who know how to pass a bill, who understand appropriations, who understand mm-hmm. the, uh, the schoolhouse rock of Congress. I don't think I'm <laughs> shocking anyone. A lot of these members who don't legislate don't understand anything, and so they're not of value to these lobbying firms.
1: So it's you know conventional wisdom at this point that like nothing gets done in Congress; they're not passing any bills. So the value though is still with passing a budget. You know, like you can lobby a certain office to attach a certain thing to a certain bill, uh, like omnibus spending bill, for example. Even if there's not big like world-changing legislation happening, like Congress is still allotting a lot of money to a lot of states all the time, right?
0: So I think what we're seeing on a big policy perspective is almost a slow motion heart attack in Congress, where at first they couldn't do the big things. And so they just focused on the things that were within their power, namely funding the government. And now Congress is even struggling to do that. And that that is also part of what's hurting this job market is there's not a lot of legislation to influence. But one thing I've noticed is that these lobbying firms they're ready when a crisis happens so when covid hit there were suddenly in this huge spending bill just you know to keep the economy functional there were a lot of weird things that obviously lobbyists encouraged congress to put in so they're ready for an opportunity but generally speaking the lack of production of legislation in congress is also sort of sort of dimming the view of k street on a lot of ex-members uh, according to people i've spoken mm. to
1: all right abby i want to take a quick break and when i come back i want to talk to you about the veep stakes which are here early this year with Donald Trump basically on the cusp of winning the Republican nomination. Welcome back to The Powers That Be, everybody. I'm joined by Abby Livingston. We're talking politics, of course. Abby, I wrote a piece for The Best and the Brightest yesterday about all the names floating around to become Trump's running mate. Uh, And look, I mean, this exercise, as you know, every four years, you know, it seems very gossipy. A lot of people make fun of the press for devoting so much energy to something that, you know, they can't possibly know. And running mates typically don't have a huge measurable impact on the outcome of the election. But there are some names starting to bubble up. And I going to ask you about A couple of them just because your expertise is Capitol Hill. And a lot of these folks, most of the folks that I'm hearing about from MAGA World are people who inhabit Capitol Hill. Tim Scott is one. Katie Britt, the senator from Alabama, is another. Elise Stefanik, Byron Donalds, JD Vance, Christy Noam. She's out in South Dakota as governor, but she was a member of Congress back during the Tea Party era from South Dakota. All of those seem to be. The top names. Uh, please go read my column if you haven't yet, explaining why each of these people have risen to the top of the pack. But I want—I I don't know too much about a few of these folks, and I want to ask you: What is Byron Donald's reputation on Capitol Hill? I mean, Trump clearly likes him. He's only been on the Hill for you know a few years. Prominent election denier, Trump loyalist. Came out against Ron DeSantis very early on in the presidential race, which endeared him to Trump as well. But what's his reputation on the Hill?
0: You know, the first time I ever heard of him was during Kevin McCarthy's speaker round after round after round vote. And some of the Freedom Caucus guys got behind him. I think he was a sophomore at that point. So it was it was a Uh very strange, but there's clearly an affection for him. I'm not too in depth on him. But what I would say is I think he's sort of a Troublemaker in the Freedom Caucus mold, but probably not a nihilist like some of them.
1: (laughs) That's a good summation. What about Katie Britt? She she keeps coming up, and this is somebody who might typically be considered like a Rhino type. She earned her chops kind of in the in the Republican establishment over the years. She defeated Mo Brooks in the Alabama Senate primary in twenty twenty two with Trump's blessing. She's only 41 years old, mother of two. Pretty impressive, but not really well-known outside of Washington or Alabama. What can you tell me about her?
0: Well, she was a Senate staffer, and she's one of the few staffers who's been able to make the leap to principal. Everything I've seen about her, she's pretty low key. She's she's very young for a senator, which is good for a state like Alabama, so she can build seniority. Mm -hmm. And to use a Trump term, I mean, she does seem to have walked out of central casting, um, which I, you know, hate to bring up. But that is something that he is going to put an enormous emphasis on as he goes about this decision.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, when I was writing this, I went and watched some of her campaign ads and some of her, you know, appearances in committees, you know. Interrogating people, she's pretty talented. Honestly, I'm surprised she's not more famous. But I talked to one person who who's worked with her, and they said, "quote Her personality is not really one to run toward cable news or try to be a big social media person. She likes to work behind the scenes to get things done to work toward solutions. That's her personality. But look, that's something that's something that someone who's rooting for her kind of would say. You don't want to be seen as like openly running or auditioning to be Trump's running mate. But she strikes me as somebody that that Trump likes." And knows, and by the way, her husband is a six foot eight former NFL offensive lineman, and Trump thinks that's cool. I'm told. <laughs> um, but she, you know, she feels like she would be a pretty able running mate, be able to, if she became VP, work closely with McConnell and John Thune. It seems like they would trust her. She's Christian. Uh, she's from the South, so she could sort of do that two step where she would appeal to the base. And she's she doesn't seem like she would be young energetic a fresh face but she also like wouldn't overshadow Donald Trump which is also I think pretty important to him on the flip side of Katie Britt I I sort of positioned Elise Stefanik who we talk about all the time on this podcast You, you know you've covered her for a while now also millennial also you know theoretically could appeal to suburban women but she seems more like a MAGA fire breather than Katie Britt does don't you think
0: Absolutely. Um, and we've all watched that happen in real time. Elise Stefanik is someone who, if you are our age in Washington and had almost anything to do with Republican politics in the last 15 years, you probably encountered her, whether she was in Congress or she was known around town as a, you know as a staffer for the Bush White House. It, she sure wants this. And she's mm-hmm. there is no lack of ambition with Elise Stefanik. And it seems like something she would relish doing but i also just sort of wonder if she wants it too much i mean the thing and to kind of pull back on this this is going to be a six month long episode of the apprentice or season of the apprentice i don't think this This is something that i think he is probably going to dangle in front of a lot of people and i mean i think it's fairly apparent she wants this pretty badly
1: i think that's right Evan go check out the best of the brightest for more of my reporting and abby's reporting on all of this I know it's weird that we're already talking about Trump's running mate, but you know, typically this happens in the summertime. Typically, nominations take longer to wrap up, but it is a uh, you know all but certain that Trump is going to be the Republican nominee at this point. One thing I can say for certain, Trump's running mate will not be Ron DeSantis, and it will not be Nikki Haley. You can take that to the bank. Abby, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me, Peter.
1: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey.